I trust that our presence there will be an inspiration to you to cause you to realize, men, that vitality and energy come as a result of purpose. Purpose. The worst thing that could happen to you as a man is to become purposeless. If you come to a place where you simply don't know why you exist and have nothing to get you up in the morning and cause you to stir and move in a particular direction, if you have nothing to inspire that kind of behavior, I want you to know you're on the way out. You're on the way out. But as long as there's purpose, as long as there's a sense of devotion and commitment, your days for accomplishing things will never end. So may God bless you and inspire you. I'm so delighted to see all the men who are gathered here today representing our various congregations of Sitam. While we served here, one of our great concerns was to ever inspire and motivate men to be part of the activities of Nairobi Pentecostal Church. From day one, we have always had a tremendous number of women. And it goes without saying, their contributions have made incalculable uh, help and service to this work of God. And we have longed at times to see more men in various uh, points and ministries in the church. But I've come back and all of you, all of you seem so mature. I, I, I can't get over it. David Oginde, I remember when I had to say to them, come on, Dave, you can do it. I know you can do it. <laughs> I remember the day that I said to Bonnie, I said, uh, Bonnie, my wife and I have prayed and we have decided that we should turn Nairobi Pentecostal Church over to your leadership. And Bonnie said, oh, me? <laughs> Never forget it. He said, he, he, he touched his balding head and said, Pastor, you sure? <laughs> and what a tremendous blessing he has turned out to be. And then some of the other leaders, like Patrick and uh, Joe here, and some of these young men, Ken, and some of these boys who were so young and full of vitality to come back and see them so composed and so in charge and so full of leadership. I just rejoice in the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
I would certainly encourage all of you men, regardless of where you serve, to ever be an inspiration to your pastor and to your leaders. Work with them. Ever help them and inspire them and motivate them. I'm a strong believer in team ministry. I believe it with all my heart and soul. The team ministry is the ministry that truly achieves things for God in the ongoing uh, process of growth and development and achievement. Because no one man has it all. There was a time when we wanted to believe that. And so the individuals that were called dynamic and strong leaders uh, took the center stage and give the impression that no one else could come near them or could uh, have what they have. I have always questioned that type of thinking and behavior because I've always been conscious of the fact that Dennis White doesn't have it all. I need others to complement my ministry and gifts. And I'm so grateful to God that he has caused this concept of thinking and ministry to be accepted and to be implemented here at CETAM. Always remember it, that we need one another. And together, we can achieve great things and go places. So we thank God for the tremendous togetherness that we sense here among you. I am particularly grateful this morning to have the Attorney General Amos Wacko with us. Um, I remember when Amos came into the church and the long talks we've had together, the help that he's given me and the inspiration that he's been to me and uh, uh, to know that he's still going on and very committed, I am delighted, so delighted to, to have him uh, here with us today. And one of, the, one of the things that overwhelms me and overcomes me as I look at your faces, behind every face is a history. And uh, the, the part that I had to play in that history and the role that God gave me as an encourager, as one to inspire you and put fire under you and get you going. I'm so glad that uh, when I come to the place where I definitely can't do anything, I can sit in an old rocking chair and I can live off memories. As faces come to me, I can live off the memories of people who, whose lives I have impacted and whose fellowship remains so rich and warm and real to my life. Well, I've been asked today to speak on the theme, who is on the throne? May I have my water, please? Who is on the throne? Thank you. Who is on the throne? And I would want to believe that this theme is asking the question, 
who reigns on the throne of my life? Who reigns on the throne of my life? One of the things that makes a man a man is the feeling of being in charge, in control. I think when that is taken away from us, it somehow does damage to our psyche or makeup. And uh, we are best, we are at our best when we feel that we're in control. When we know that we're managing things well, that we're giving the kind of direction and the kind of leadership that makes for success. But I want to say to us today as Christian men that our greatest contribution and our greatest achievements come when we submit to the one who should reign on the throne of our hearts unquestioningly unopposedly we need to make Christ the king of our lives and let him reign and rule undisputedly on the throne of our hearts when he is not reigning when he is not in control then we are not absolutely sure of where we're going. We are not confident of any pursuits that we undertake. But when Christ reigns and is the undisputed head of our lives, when he dictates what we should do and shouldn't do, then we can rest in confidence that our lives will be meaningful and impactful. In the life of the Christian, Christ should reign supreme. But the theme of my message suggests that this is not always the case. For there are times when Satan, sin, or self reigns and rules and the results of such power manifested in our lives dictating how we think and how we behave can be ruinous can be destructive and uh, I would want us today to be absolutely sure that we have enthroned Christ as the undisputed ruler of our lives. It is absolutely important that we do this. What is certain is that whoever or whatever reigns, that reign is reflected in our lifestyle 
or behavior. You can tell who is reigning in a person's life. You can tell who is in charge and who is in control by that person's disposition, by that person's behavior, by that person's lifestyle. The Bible tells us that when a godly king or ruler reigns, that the people rejoice. They're glad, they're happy, but when an ungodly despot reigns in our hearts, the people are sad. For there is confusion, there's chaos, there's anarchy. I want, therefore, to take this opportunity to give you six reasons. Six reasons why you should make Christ the undisputed ruler of your life. Six reasons. You see, the cross is a sign of the Christian faith and is central in Christianity. And there is no gospel without the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel and the cross are inseparable. Someone wrote so correctly, the cross is an exposure of human evil, but it is also a revelation of the divine purpose of God to overcome the human evil thus exposed. The cross of Christ has both negative and positive implications. For it speaks of the gravity of sin, but also the majesty of God. And to truly appreciate the cross of Christ and its benefits, we must first acknowledge the sinfulness of the human heart. For the cross of Christ is truly the remedy for the sin of all humanity. But I must confess that this way of thinking does not find acceptance among many today. The many self-help books that are on the market that tells us from a very uh, humanistic point of view how we as men can be successful and achievers these books do not refer in any way to the sinfulness of the human heart and the need of the sinner for a savior they're simply peddling certain ideas and philosophies that are built on human experience and human achievement and they deal primarily with the natural and in no way entertains the spiritual or the supernatural. A gifted theologian informed us that the very word sin has in recent years dropped from most people's vocabulary. It belongs to traditional religious phraseology which at least in the increasingly secularized West is now declared by many to be meaningless. Today, the sin issue 
is rationalized as the lack of maturity, the need for enlightenment, the need for more self-determination, the need to become ourselves and be freed from ancient taboos and repressive guilt. What is noteworthy is that in spite of amazing human achievements on earth and in space, we are still in the infant stage of resolving the wickedness within the human heart. The most crowded facilities on this planet, from north to south, east to west, are our jails. And our courts are having problems dealing with mountains of pending court cases for law-breaking. And this will ever be so, for our human behavior reflects the paradox that while we can initiate noble and outstanding acts of kindness, resident in the best of us is the capacity for producing evil deeds. And this will ever be. What is our problem? In order to truly enthrone Christ as the ruler of our lives, as our master, as the one who charts the course and dictates how we live and behave, we have to begin with the sin issue. We have to start there. Sin is anything that is contrary to God's character and commands. It is original and personal. It is a condition as well as an act. You see, Adam, our federal head, passed on to us his progeny, the condition of sin. But then, as individuals, we also choose to sin. So in essence, we sin because we are by nature sinners. So what's the solution? The divine solution is found in Romans 5 and 8. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross speaks of the gravity of sin and God's remedy for the sin problem. Christ's death on the cross accomplishes or accomplished six divine acts of redemption for us. And they're the six reasons that I want to give to you today for enthroning Jesus Christ as Master and Lord and King of our lives. We have a way as preachers of talking about the crucifixion. We talk about Christ's death and we emphasize it again and again and we make reference to various verses that tell us 
Cursed is he who dies on a tree. And we zero in on the fact that Christ was crucified on a hill called Golgotha. And he was nailed to a cross. Having said that, preachers don't normally go any farther to talk about what actually was the character of crucifixion. Why did the God-man, directed by heaven's design, die the kind of death he died? The most ignominious, the ugliest, the most cruel death that mortals could experience. Well, I want to help you today with the help of a medical doctor to try to help you to see what crucifixion is really like. The cross made of two wooden beams, the shorter horizontal, was nailed to the longer vertical beam in the form of a T, and it's placed on the ground, and the exhausted victim is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the cross beam. The executioners feel for the depression at the front of the wrist and drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action. The cross is then lifted into place and the upright beam dropped into the hole dug for it. And as it lands at the bottom of the hole with a dull thud, it shakes and every bone in that person's body experiences the tension of that drop. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot and with both feet extended toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each leaving the knees flex. The victim could now be classified as being crucified. As he so slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist put pressure on the median nerves and he pushes himself upward to avoid stretching to save the pain in the wrist. He places the full weight on the nails through his feet when he does that. 
Again, he feels the searing agony of the nails tearing through the nerves between the bones of the feet. As the arms fatigue and cramp sweeps through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward in order to breathe. Air is drawn into the lungs but not exhale. He fights to raise himself in order to get even a small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial gasping for air, searing pain, as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. <clears throat> then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep within the chest as the pericarium slowly fills with serum. This is the sac that surrounds the heart and begins to compress the heart. The loss of tissue fluids reach a cruel or critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. And the tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp a small gulp of air. This death extended over a long period of time. It didn't come quickly. But finally, after the entire body goes through this terrible and ugly existence, the body begins to feel the chill of death creeping on. And finally, it gives up and dies. I, as a man, as a Christian man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from sin came to earth and experienced that kind of death for you and for me. And did it to bring us into a relationship with God where we could be deemed as righteous. Here then are these six metaphors of redemption. The six reasons why you should put Jesus on the throne of your life. The six metaphors of redemption.
Firstly, the cross of Jesus Christ speaks of a vicarious substitutionary penalty. A vicarious substitutionary penalty. In essence, what that is saying is that Christ died in your place. That's what it's saying. He took the penalty that you deserve. The sentence that was transmitted to sinners. Christ intervened and bore that penalty for you. He died in your place and in my place. The death that mortals should have experienced because of our sinnerhood, Jesus Christ came as the vicarious sacrifice and went to the cross for you and for me. He received what you and I deserve. And we need to get that. The death that Christ died should not only be considered as a tremendous sacrifice and an awesome display of God's love. Rather, we should understand that Christ came to bear the judgment of God for sin so that you and I wouldn't have to bear it. He took it in your place so that when Christ died on that cross, it was as though you were dying there. He experienced it all for you. So why then should we be judged for sin? When a sin bearer came into this world, substitution was with an intention. And that intention is that we, by faith, might live by his death. The life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that reason for making him Lord? That he would have loved us so much that he would have taken the penalty that we deserve. Story is told of two brothers there were a twin, identical twin. One was strong and one was weak. And these boys were inseparable. One day they were standing at the edge of the soccer field and someone kicked the ball in the direction of the boys. And the weaker boy had the presence of mind as the ball came towards him to just put his foot out and tap the ball and it ricocheted and went through the window of the principal's office. With a bang and a crash, it landed on the principal's desk. 
the principal pushed the window up and stuck his head out and asked, Who did it? Who did that? And the stronger brother said to the weaker, Don't say a word. Not one word. The principal came rushing out and the stronger brother said, I did it, sir. He was ushered into the office of the principal and corporal punishment was employed. He got it good. <laughs> and then the principal said, that will teach you not to kick balls through the principal's window. And then he said, sir, I didn't do it. You didn't do it? But you just told me a while ago you did. He said, the reason, sir, is because I have a brother. And I love him. And he is not as strong as I am. And fearing that he would not be able to take the kind of penalty you dished out. <laughs> I came in his place. That had quite an impact on the principal. And I want you to know, men, as we sit here this morning, that the full fury of sin, sin in all its wickedness, sin in all its ugliness, sin in all that it constitutes, not just an act of sin, but the very essence of sin, the very nature of sin, was placed upon Jesus. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus experienced the vicarious substitutionary penalty that you and I deserve. Secondly, the second metaphor of redemption is that the cross of Jesus Christ was a propitiatory, a propitiatory sacrifice. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-O-R-Y, propitiatory sacrifice. Well, what is meant by that? On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus paid it in full. You and I know what it is to buy something. And we purchase the thing and we make a down payment. And you pay monies along the way. And then finally, when you make the final payment, you get a bill and the proprietor takes a rubber stamp and he stamps your receipt. Bang! Paid in full. Whew. That thing becomes absolutely and totally yours. No other payment is deserved. You don't have to pay another thing because that object or that thing is now totally and completely yours. It has been paid for in full. When Jesus Christ 
died on the cross. He did not experience partial judgment or incomplete judgment. He took the total fury of God's hatred and wrath for sin. He satisfied the justice of God and the demands of the law of God. It was Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 that says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I want to shout to the top of my voice for you to hear. There are other religions that are coming on the scene. And they are telling us, no, you need to do something else. This was Paul's constant conflict. As he confronted the Judaizers, he told the Gentiles, you don't need anything else. You don't have to be circumcised. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's why... We sing the old gospel song. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Men, I declare to you today that Jesus paid it in full, totally and completely. He satisfied the holiness of God, the justice of God, the hatred of God for sin. And so brought about our righteousness, peace with God. Thirdly, the third metaphor of redemption, the cross of Jesus Christ, speaks of a reconciliatory death. A reconciliatory death. Christ's cross expanded the gulf of our alienation and has reconciled us to God. The enmity that was between us and the alienation that resulted in us going astray, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. This preacher tells you today, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So hear me, 
the Bible tells us that the cross of Jesus Christ, this metaphor of redemption, reconciliation, has brought us peace with God. And there's no conflict, no longer division between ourselves and God. Fourthly, the cross of Jesus Christ accomplish redemption for us. You see, we were hostages of sin, slaves of sin, and we served sin. We were slaves to this diabolical, satanic force, and it made us slaves. And we demonstrated that slavery in obeying it. The acts that we did and the things that we did all spoke of the fact that we were slaves to sin and we obey the slave master and did those atrocious, nasty, despicable, and ugly deeds. But something has happened. You see, Christ paid the ransom price on the cross so that we might be set free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for sin. Now please get this straight. Jesus did not pay the ransom price that was demanded to the devil. He didn't. He paid it to God. It's God who declared sin as atrocious, ugly. It's God who demanded that a ransom price be paid to set the sinner free. And Jesus paid that price on the cross. Paid it fully and completely to God. And as a result, we've been set free. Fourthly, the cross of Jesus Christ accomplished justification for us. That's another beautiful word, a legal term. Justification for us. And this is another great metaphor of redemption. Christ's cross made available our justification. The word justification is a legal term. For we all stood guilty before God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But through Christ's death on the cross, we have been acquitted. All who place faith in Jesus Christ have been acquitted. You see, the verdict is in, and it reads, not guilty, not guilty, to the extent that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, 
but the Spirit. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the justified sinner can now have peace with God, peace with himself, and initiate peace with his fellow man. We have been justified, declared just as though we had never said, case dismissed. <laughs> Sixthly, Christ's cross secured adoption for us. That's the sixth metaphor of redemption. Adoption. I know that you Kenyans have a way that when your father and mother die, you go around and you say, I'm an orphan. I'm an orphan. I've heard that so many times during, yeah, even at 50. I'm an orphan. I'm an orphan. Brothers and sisters, hear this preacher today. You're no orphan. You are no orphan. Are you hearing me? Because something glorious has happened. Sin disinherited us from being the children of God. It robbed us of sonship. Sin alienated us from God, making us orphans. But through Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. The papers are signed. <laughs> they're sealed there can be no reversal for we have been adopted into God's family Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 we were chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. God has graciously through Jesus Christ. Adopted us to himself as his children. So you can boast today. I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. For I have been adopted into the family of God. A couple... After five years of marriage, we're not having children. And so they decided to adopt. They felt the way to go is to adopt. And so they agree to adopt in a boy, a son. Shortly after the adoption took place, as it happens in so many cases, the wife became pregnant and gave birth later on to a baby boy. The two boys grew up together and were so close. They were extremely close. And neighbors and friends couldn't help but notice the closeness 
of these children, these two boys. So, one day, a neighbor who knew of the adoption asked the mother of the boys, which, which boy is yours? Which boy is yours? To which she replied, both of them. Both of them. But the neighbor was insistent. She persisted in asking, I mean, which one was adopted? To which the mother replied, I've forgotten. I forgot. <laughs> Hallelujah! When God adopted us as his children, he forgot where we came from. He chooses to forget our sins and forget our wayward past and to give to us the full rights of sonship. And he treats us as though we had never sinned. For this plan was initiated in the mind of God in eternity and he predestined it to be so. So you're in the family of God today. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, we were chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, in the light of all the truth that I've shared with you today, does this not give us reason to make Jesus Christ Lord of our lives? Does it not inspire us to enthrone him as our king, as our master? How could he have experienced all this, achieve all this for us, and not convince us of his love and goodwill for you and for me? How does this come about? I love the theological world. I love the word because it says so much. It comes about through appropriation. Appropriation. And what does the word appropriation mean? To appropriate something is to make what was not yours, yours. You receive it. You believe it. And you took it to yourself and you made it your very own. Who reigns on the throne of your heart? Who has the right to reign on the throne of your heart? Who then should dictate how you live? Who then should 
direct you in your thinking, your behavior? Who then should give you hope in this world and in the life to come? Should it not be Jesus Christ? Would you bow your head with me? Father, we confess that oftentimes in our folly and stupidity we allow rivals to take their place in our lives. Rivals who would want to stage a coup and try to dethrone Jesus from being Lord and Master. And I pray today that the Spirit of God would just emblazon these truths upon our hearts and cause us to recognize why, why, why we should ever enthrone Christ and exalt him and worship him and give him his rightful place as Lord and Master of our lives. We come against selfishness and self. We come against sin. We come against Satan. We come against any force that would try to depose Christ. And we tell them, no, no, no. We put them down daily. We say no to them. And we exalt Christ. Not money, not fame, not power. We exalt Jesus. And welcome him to sit in full authority and rule over our lives. It could well be that there are men here with us today, Lord, who have somehow lost sight of these reasons I have shared and have become a bit indifferent, careless. They've allowed apathy to set in and they have not daily recognized you as Lord. I pray, O oh God, that you would bring a spirit of repentance to us today and cause us to confess our sin. And while our head bowed and we are praying, if you are here today and you say with me, Pastor, true, in the struggles of life, in the fight for bread and butter, in my daily association with life and its challenges, I have overlooked this truth. And I have courted rivals. I want forgiveness today. And if you're here and this is the situation in your life, I want you to stand for we're going to pray together. Would you stand? I've seen the truth. You've spoken to my heart, Lord. And I want 
to acknowledge I've made a mistake. If you are here and you want the Lord to forgive you, let's stand and receive together this prayer of repentance. Would you stand if you have? Come on. There are many men standing, but I know there are more. I want to declare that Jesus is sovereign Lord of my life. Are there others? Are there others? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I thank you for these men who are standing and who indicate by this position that they courted rivals and overlook the reasons why Jesus should be Lord of our lives. I pray that you would grant them today your forgiveness. Let your forgiveness right now as they repent affect their lives and their thinking and their wills and cause them right now to depose, to depose every rival. To turn them over to you for death and destruction. And truly acknowledge Jesus as Lord. I ask that you do this for them today. And Lord, while you're touching their lives and making this a reality. Maybe there are men here with us today that you have never, ever rightly placed Jesus on the throne. That you have never endorsed or embraced reasons for making Jesus Lord of your life, Savior and Lord. And today, the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart. And you want Jesus. You want Jesus to become the master and the Lord of your life. If you have never done this and you're going to do it today, I want you to get up from where you're sitting, ask the men to excuse you, and you move out and come and stand here before me. We're going to pray together. Come. I want to make Jesus today my Savior and my Lord. You come. Come right now. Come. Praise God. Come. Are there others? Come. Come. I am making Jesus the Savior and the Lord and Master of my life. I've never done this before. And I want to do it today. Are there others? Thank God we have one man who has said, uh, I need this. Are there others? You know that there is someone else or something else that's ruling from the throne of your life, not Jesus. And you're saying today, Jesus, I invite you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord you come I'm going to wait for you just a little while longer 
For I believe there are others who are seated here who have other despots reigning from their hearts and not Jesus. Would you come? We wait for a moment. You come right now. Right now. Right now. Right now, in Jesus' name. Father, I believe that there are men who need to make this acknowledgement here today. And I come against the forces of Satan who would try to intimidate them and say to them, Don't remove my rule in your life. May they say no to the voice of the evil one. And may they say yes to Jesus. Grant it now, Lord, I pray. You come, get up from your seat, and you come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this one who has responded. And I pray that even now, the Spirit of God would move in convicting force to make him conscious of his sinnerhood and to cause him to turn from sin to Jesus and to receive the saving grace of Jesus by an act of faith and to make Jesus Lord of his life. I pray, Lord, for the enthronement of your holy presence in his life. I ask, O oh God, that all forces of hell would be subjugated, put down, and that Jesus would reign in him for now and all eternity. Do you receive this, my brother? Lord, I pray that you'll grant this to him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you and thank you. Amen. We can do better than that to appreciate Pastor White. Thank you. Are you blessed? Amen. Amen. May the Lord help us indeed to make Lord Jesus Christ to be our Lord in life. Amen. For this time, we are going to take a short break. We are going to give you just 15 minutes. We have a cup of tea prepared for you. The only difference with this cup of tea, this time you are not going to pay. Because we are all men here. So we've done it for ourselves. So we're just going to pray and then we are going to walk out. We'll be directed. We are going to have a cup of tea. We are going to have our guests just exit right now to the boardroom uh, where it has been prepared for you. So just before they get out, let's just pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of sitting at your feet. Thank you, Lord, for ministering to us in such a powerful way, O oh God. 
We pray that Lord as we leave this place will never be the same again. Thank you for using your servant, Pastor White. May you continue to bless him. And even Lord for the challenge you brought to us through him. And we pray right now, Lord, even as we go to have a cup of tea, you bless it, O oh God. And we pray even as we come back, you still prepare a table for us to dine at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.